0: Morning. I'm Nate. I'm the lead pastor here, uh, for those of you that don't already know that, uh, and for everybody that's at your cottage uh, Labor Day weekend, what's up out there? I can tell because a bunch of people that are normally sitting here aren't here. Uh, So how many of us have ever read or watched uh, something that was really like big, like multi-episodes building toward like one final like big, you know, ending, not, I'm not talking like a regular sitcom where it's like every week is sort of like interchangeable with every other week, but something that actually kind of like builds. I'm thinking like Harry Potter, right? Where you start in book one and then like book two builds on it and book three and book, and all the way to book seven. And there's this huge climactic battle at the end of book seven or, or Lord of the Rings is another example of this, right? Where, you know, if you watch the movies, the extended edition, you're like, it's 12 hours of the same movie, just like building and building and building. Uh, and so think about, I want you to think about those because that's kind of what we're going to be dealing with a little bit for the next couple months. Um, And so I I just want to put in your mind, the way that a good author deals with those things is they don't just make it kind of like, oh, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. They like give you hints of what's coming, right? Like they tease stuff for you and they tell you like, oh, this thing happened. Then later on you're like, oh, that was so important. And I didn't realize it at the time. So a good example of this is Lord of the Rings because I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. Uh, so lo- in Lord of the Rings, you know, there's this this battle scene early on. It's fairly early on, uh, and so Frodo, who's like the hero of the whole series, he's in this battle, and there's this troll. There's all these trolls, right? And so this one troll comes at him with this spear, and it's a huge, huge troll, and he like tries to stab him with the spear, and everybody's like. Oh, Frodo's totally dead. You can't see that at all. That's super dark. Uh, So he's getting stabbed there, right? So Frodo gets stabbed and everybody's like, oh no, he's dead. And they run over. And when they get there, he's not dead. And you're like, how is he not dead? That was like the biggest monster that they faced yet. And he opens up his shirt and he's got like this invincible armor underneath, right? Like, you're like, you know what? An hour ago, his uncle gave that to him and I forgot about that. I didn't know that he was wearing that the whole time. It was there. So of course he would be fine. Right? And so there was like this little thing that dropped you know, early on, his uncle gave him this armor, and then later on it comes out and you're like, oh, so that's why that was okay. On the other hand, there's some series that go on for a long time and they're terrible because they do this badly. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of my pet peeves, Lost. It's a decade ago, but I still am passionate in my hatred for Lost. How many guys watched Lost? Anybody? I gave up after three seasons. So here's what happens. There's like all these things, and they're like dropping these little hints, and they're dropping these like, you know, nuggets, and you're like, okay, what happens? And then they just ignore it. Like, Walt was special. Why was Walt special? Because Walt was special. What happened to Walt? He just disappeared. They just wrote him out of the show. They didn't get, you're like, but he was special. He was important. We knew he was supposed to be there. And there's all these things. A decade later, I'm telling you, you can look online and you will see lists of people saying, well, this is unresolved. This is a cliffhanger that never got dealt with. This is a huge plot hole that nobody ever addressed. And you're like, They finished writing it a a decade ago, but what they did was they basically wrote a final episode and they're like, okay, I think we're done, guys. And they just ran away and pretended it never existed. And so if you rewatch it, it's terrible because you don't get resolution for any of this stuff. So we're talking this this series about God's epic plan. And the thing is, is God's a storyteller. We've kind of heard that before, right? So God's a storyteller and he's telling this big, long, expansive story. And God's not gonna drop a bunch of stuff in there that doesn't have resolution. He's building to a climax. And so what we're gonna find out as as we go through this series is that really Jesus is the climax of every story that God is telling, right? And so when we go through, we're gonna start at the beginning of the Old Testament and we're gonna work our way through very quickly, actually, through the Old Testament. And we're going to see how a lot of these different things kind of point to Jesus in different ways. Um, And and I say the Old Testament, and I know that there's a percentage of people that just kind of cringe. And they're like, I don't want to deal with this. Like, I like the New Testament. You know, Jesus is cool. The epistles are cool. The Psalms are good. I like the Psalms. But other than that, I have no idea. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. It's hard. I don't know what to do with it. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Old Testament. We're going to try and understand uh, what God is trying to do, what God is trying to communicate through those hard, confusing stories. Um, And I I think that's really helpful because when when we can see God, when we can understand what God is doing through the Old Testament it helps us better understand who God is because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so there's not some point in history where he switched, where he changed, where he stopped dealing with people uh, or, or fundamentally changed who he was. He's the same God. And so if we look at some of these stories from the Old Testament, we better understand him for who he is. We understand his character and his His nature a little bit better. Uh, and so we're gonna go through this and we're gonna work on, on some of these different stories, and we're going to un- try and understand what God is trying to accomplish when he tells us these stories and, and why, how and why they point to Jesus. Uh, and so as we're doing that, what I want to do is I want to give you just this morning, we're ju- it's just an intro, we're not dealing with a specific passage. Um, what I want to do is I want to give you three tools that you can use when you're reading the Old Testament. And, and these tools are just sort of ideas, there, there may be a framework for how God, how we can view the Old Testament, how we can work through the Old Testament and understand it in light of sort of what we know now. And and while I give you that framework, while I give you those tools, I'm going to point to a couple of objections that people have, and so I'm going to try and address those sort of along the way, uh, where I think it's appropriate. So. The first thing that I want to point out to you is that God actually has a plan. So that's the first thing when you're looking at the Old Testament, recognize that God has a plan. We think that we know God. We think that we're fairly smart. And we always, not always, we often have a plan, right? Like when we're trying to accomplish something, when we're moving in a direction, we think these are the steps that I need to accomplish in order to get there. And so God, when he wanted to accomplish something, he didn't just wake up one morning and be like, okay, today's the day, right? Like he understood beforehand what direction he was going to move in, how he was going to accomplish what he wanted to do. And so when we read through the Old Testament, what we realize is that it reveals God's epic plan to restore a relationship with humanity through Jesus. So as we're reading through the Old Testament, we have to look for that plan and say, how is God, how can we see God's plan to restore relationship with, with the human race? How do we see that? How do we see that moving forward? And what I'm going to do is, I'm not sure that you believe me, so turn with me to Luke 24, and I'll tell you about how Jesus thought that this was the, the plan, right? So Luke 24 um, Jesus talks a little bit about the Old Testament, a little bit about what he thought about the Old Testament. So this is Resurrection Sunday. Okay, so if you're in Luke 24, Jesus has literally just risen from the dead. You can go back like one and a half chapters and you're like, oh, he's in the tomb, now he's alive. So this is the Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose early in the morning. The women came before dawn. They saw the grave was empty, right? So this is the late afternoon, early evening of literally the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So he's walking along. And he comes across some of these guys that are disciples of him that are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's a city maybe a couple miles from Jerusalem. So these guys are walking. They're followers of Jesus, and they're walking. And Jesus comes up beside them, and he starts talking to them. And they don't recognize him. They don't realize it's Jesus. And so they're, like, confused about what happened. Jesus died. We're not sure. We thought he was the Messiah. We're not clear on what's going on. And so this is what Jesus says to them. Verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses so Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy Moses and all the prophets he interpreted in them he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself so he starts in Genesis and he's like let me explain to you the old testament in a way that you'll understand why i had to die they still didn't realize it was him So they get to this city, Emmaus, and suddenly they start to have dinner and they realize, oh, this is Jesus. And then Jesus disappears because he's glorified now, right? So Jesus disappears and they are like, oh my word, we saw a risen Jesus. So they run back to Jerusalem. They just walked there, right? They turn around, they run all the way back to Jerusalem. They tell all the other disciples and all the other disciples say, okay, we got to have a conversation about this. So they all pull together in one room. They didn't have Twitter or Facebook to do it virtually, right? Like no Zoom meeting they're in person, so they're meeting in this room, and they start to talk about, like, so these guys say they saw Jesus, these women say that Jesus' grave was empty, what is going on, and then Jesus shows up in that room, just there, right? And he says this, so first he proves he's alive, he eats something, but then he says this, Uh, verse 44, it says, and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance of the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from the most high. So Jesus is saying, listen, he told these two guys on the way to Emmaus and then he told all of his disciples in Jerusalem. He said, I'm the fulfillment of everything that God was doing in the Old Testament, right? And so when we look at Jesus, we're like, okay, so Jesus comes out and he says that about himself. He says, he's the final piece of what God was doing throughout the Old Testament, that God was moving in a direction, God was trying to accomplish something through the Old Testament and Jesus is the final piece of that. He's the piece that helps us really understand that. So I'm going to, like, when you think about the stories in the Old Testament, right? Like, there, there's the story of the Exodus, right? Where God's people are enslaved, they're in Egypt, and God leads them out of slavery, right? He leads them through the Red Sea, away from Pharaoh, and he leads them to freedom in the promised land. And so when he's doing that, he's not just freeing his people, he's also creating a people for, for his Messiah to come through. And he's giving them the idea that we need to be free, right? And so when Jesus comes and says, I'm going to free you from sin because, and I'm going to create a people for God that's unique. And and they have this relationship with God that no one else has. has." Then the people of Israel are like, oh, that clicks because we know that story, right? So that's a story that happened in our history. And then also that's what Jesus is doing. Or later on, they, they build the tabernacle, right? It's this tent. And they build this tent so that, you know, God can live in their midst. And then after a couple hundred years, they build a temple that's like a permanent one. That's like God is going to live here, right? And the reason that they do that is so that God can live in their midst. God can be a part of the nation, that he's going to sit in the middle of the nation and they can have a relationship with him. And so when Jesus comes to earth and he says, I'm God in the flesh, I want to have a relationship with you. They're like, yep, that's the thing that God does. God comes and lives with his people. God cares about his people and wants a relationship with them. So he lives with them. Right? And so that when we say Jesus is the final piece, it's like the ultimate of each one of those. Like the tabernacle was okay, the temple was good, but Jesus, like, that's so much better. Freedom from slavery is good, that's helpful. Creating a people, that's great. But freedom from sin and an eternal relationship with God, that's better. Right? And so Jesus is sort of that final piece of all these things that God was working through in the Old Testament. There's all these examples of what God is doing, and, and the final piece is Jesus. And there's, there's a lot of examples of this. I'm not going to go through them all now. We've got a whole series. We've got like 15 weeks of exploring this. And we're actually going to call some of this stuff out where, where we see how these different stories point us forward to Jesus. But Jesus isn't just the final piece of what God did in the Old Testament. He's also, also the fulfillment of everything that God promises in the Old Testament. Right, and so Jesus is, is the final, like, fulfillment. He's the one that answers all the questions. He's the one that says, like, God promised this, and now it came. When we look through the Old Testament, there's all these promises that God makes to these different people that are, are trying to walk with him right? And, and if you go through and you, you pull out your really expensive Bible software and you're like, okay, list me all the promises that God made in the Old Testament, right? And you can go through and you can see how those are, are fulfilled in Jesus. Like you find a promise in the Old Testament that God makes, there's a good chance that it connects to Jesus. There's some that are fulfilled before Jesus, but the vast majority of the promises that God's make connect to Jesus, Um, And so we think about the big stories and the big promises that we see in the Old Testament. We're we're thinking about Adam and Noah and Abraham and and Daniel and David and all these different names that we know from the Old Testament. And God makes them promises. And then we look at what that that promise meant to be fulfilled. And we see that it points us to Jesus, that Jesus is kind of the answer. And the biggest promise that, that God made was that he would free us from sin, not just us, but the world, that he would come and he would redeem the world from sin. That was like the first promise. So we look all the way back to like the fall, right? In the very beginning, Adam and Eve fell and God comes. And the first thing that he promises is that he's going to crush the serpent that tempted them. That's the first promise that God's making is he's like, I'm going to destroy this this serpent. This is the one that tempted you. This is the one that led you astray. This is going to be destroyed. He's going to hurt me, but I'm going to destroy him completely. Right, and then he promises to, to Abraham and Jacob that through their family, through their descendants, that the whole world's gonna be blessed. He, he talks about, you know, in David, and the Psalms, that there's all this talk about, you know, there's gonna be this king that sits on the throne, but there's also talk about an offering for sin. That there's gonna come a point where God is gonna create uh, an offering for sin that will fully satisfy God and that we'll be able to have a relationship with him as a result, in Isaiah, he promises that he's going to send someone that will bring hope and justice to the entire world. In Daniel, he promises, again, that he's going to send someone to atone from our sins. Right? So these are the promises. You just scan through the Old Testament and you see these in the big stories. Like, we know those names. We know Daniel. That was the lion's den guy, right? We know David. That was the David and Goliath guy. We know Abraham. He was the one that almost killed his kid. Like, we know all these stories, and what we realize is that these stories are connected to promises that God made. And all of those came true in Jesus. Even the ones that haven't fully been fulfilled have started to be fulfilled in Jesus. Because Jesus came into the world. He was the culmination of everything that God was doing, right? He came into the world. He was God in the flesh. And he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to die for you to save you from your sin, I, I realize that this is a, a lost and broken world, and I love you too much to leave you here. And so rather than just have this one nation that's supposed to be working in the right direction, I'm going to die. I'm going to take all the guilt of all of humankind for all time, and I'm going I'm to die in order to eat, appease that guilt before God. And what we can do is we come to Jesus in faith, and we say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't approach God on my own. And Jesus says, here, because you trust in me, I'll give you my righteousness, I'll take your sin, I already died for it. I'll take your sin, that's gone. Now you stand before God as his child, as a righteous individual with all the, all the, the things that God looks at in his child, right? You're a, his perfect child. He loves you, he cares about you. You're a part of his family. And all we have to do is come to him in faith and say, Lord, I, you gotta save me from my sin. I can't fix this on my own. Right? So Jesus saves us individually, but he also works in order to save all of mankind. Like there's a bigger story there where, where we, when we come to him in humility and faith, we become a part of this larger movement, this people of God that he's creating the same way that he created Israel. And so all the promises that God made now are fulfilled with Christ dying on the cross. Like he came and he said, I'm going to crush Satan. And what happened? Sin was destroyed at the cross. We still deal with the effects of sin. We still have to struggle with the sin that's in our own lives. But the power of sin was broken by Jesus at the cross. He crushed Satan's head. He promised to bless the whole world, right? So Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. He was one of their children. He was a part of that family. And and now all of us, whether we're a part of that family or not, we have this blessing of a relationship with God because of Jesus. So we've all been blessed by Jesus because of what he did on the cross, and that's the descendant. That's the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, right? An offering for sin that he promised to David, that was, again, that's the cross. He, he offered once for all for our sins, the thought of bringing justice and hope that he talks to Isaiah about. He says, you know, I'm gonna bring this justice and hope. And Jesus says, by his death, by the fact that he defeated sin, he introduced the idea of justice and hope to the world. And as he slowly fulfills that promise, we see that happening in the world where God's expanding his idea of, of what, I, what justice and hope are. And one day when he returns, he's gonna fully fulfill that, right? We're still sort of waiting for that one to be completed, but we know that it started on the cross because we're free from our sin. And again, atonement for our sin that he promised to Daniel, we have that in the cross. So all of these different stories that have promises attached to them, they all find their fulfillment in the cross. And that seems to be a lot different than a lot of people's expectations of who God is. Because people look at the Old Testament God and they think that he's, he's frustrated, that he's angry, that he's bloodthirsty, that he's not really working for our benefit. And yet, when, Jesus, when we see Jesus, what we realize is that he accomplished everything that God wanted him to, that he was the perfect fulfillment of everything that God was doing. So we look at that objection, that God was just bloodthirsty and angry, and we start to read some of those stories, and, and we struggle with it a little bit, right? Like, we struggle with, you know, God's, there's a lot of people that die in the Old Testament, there's a lot of people that are, are in trouble that God punishes, and it seems really harsh to us. And so when we look at that, we're like, okay, that seems a lot different from what we, we see in the New Testament. It seems like God's really loving. Like when you look at Jesus, you're like, he wouldn't hurt anybody. He seems like a really nice guy. He seems like he would really care about people. He doesn't seem angry hardly at all. Like there's one or two spots where he gets angry, but it's for obvious reasons. Like it's ridiculous, right? So we look at Jesus and it doesn't make sense that it's consistent with this God that was killing people in the Old Testament. When we look through the framework, though, of that God has this plan and he's trying to make this plan end in Jesus, then it changes that idea because he's trying to pave the way for a lot of different things to happen so that Jesus is the person that he needs to be, right? And so God's creating this people so that Jesus can be the Messiah, that he can come through that people that they'll have an understanding. And so God's not angry a lot. A lot of times he's protecting his people. Like he's got these people that he's created. He created them out of nothing, they weren't a people he called Abraham and said, all right, I'm going to make you a nation, right? And they became a nation because God allowed them to. And as they became a nation, different people would attack them. And so God would say, no, we've got to prevent that from being a problem. The same way you would protect a kid, right? Like they're not fully grown. They're not matured yet. You've got to protect them. You've got to save them. And so sometimes God deals with threats to Israel before they even come up, right? There's a couple of times where he specifically says, like, I, I punished this nation because they were going to attack you. Like it's not here yet, but we prevented that from happening. So God's proactive in protecting his people. And so when you see some of this stuff that looks like just bloodthirsty and angry from God, it's really God just protecting and loving his people, the people that he's chosen. Another thing is is we look at like the sacrificial system and it's like all these animals that are getting killed and you're like, it's so bloody, why is God doing that? And a part of the reason that God did that, it's not because he was angry at these animals. It's because he wanted us to understand that the wages of sin is death. Like we see that in the cross. We see that in Romans. Like Jesus died. The wages of sin is death. He took the wages for our sin and he died for them. And yet through the Old Testament, he was was pointing out to his people like, hey, you've got to understand that sin means death. And so every time that the children of Israel had, they sinned, they had to kill something in order for that blood to make atonement for it. And it wasn't permanent and it didn't actually save them, but it was part of a lesson of like, man, when there's sin, it's gonna go badly. It's gonna end in death. You've got to understand that. Like we, we read that in Romans, but that's just like a quote of other things that we see in the Old Testament. And the other thing is that a lot of times when we think God was angry, we view that because we don't understand what God's doing, but God's base foundation for everything that he was doing was love. Like Jesus and a bunch of other people at the time said, listen, the two most important commands in, in the Old Testament are love the Lord your God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And most of the stuff that's bloody that comes out is from disobedience of those commands. And so w- when we look at that as the base where God's saying, listen, if you would love each other, a lot of these problems would go away, but the consequences of them are, are pretty gruesome. Right? And so God's trying to point out the fact that his love is, his law is based in love, but it's the, those of us that disobey that, that struggle with that, that push back against that. So that's the first sort of overarching idea that I want you to remember is that God has a plan, right? And so as we're reading through the Old Testament, if you see something that doesn't make sense, try and connect it back to what God is doing in his bigger plan. That it's not just like that one-off thing, but it's, it's part of the bigger plan. The second idea that I want you to use as kind of a framework is that God has a path that he's leading his people toward him, Um he didn't sort of pop in and like in Genesis sort of reveal everything that he was gonna do. He, he allowed them to sort of slowly understand what the goal was. Think of it this way. Have you guys ever been hiking on like a long path to a mountain, right? Like you're hiking, you're going, and you probably only see 15 or 20 feet in front of you. So you're going and you're like, okay, now there's a turn. We go around the turn. You're like, okay, now I can see another 20 feet in front of me, right? And you sort of slowly take this path. And you might know in the abstract, okay, I'm going to the top of that mountain, But you don't see the whole path. You just see the couple of feet in front of you. And then as you keep going, as you keep going, you understand more and more of how that's going to happen. And then when you get to the top of that hill, you can look back and you can see most of the the trail. You're like, oh, yeah, I see how I got here. And so we have the advantage of standing on the top of the mountain and looking back, back over the whole path. Right? Like, we look back and we're like, oh yeah, there's Genesis. I see how God did that. And then, you know, there's there's Chronicles, and I see kind of the mess that was there, right? Like, we understand what the path was to get to Jesus, but we're standing at the end of the path. So we have that advantage. They didn't. They just had the 15, 20 feet in front of them, and they're like, okay, God, I guess I go here because this is where the path goes. Again, the Old Testament reveals... God's epic plan to restore a relationship with humanity through Jesus. It's that revelation that that it takes time, It's, it's ongoing, where they didn't understand it. Like, we see it now, but they didn't see it at the time. Hebrews 1 says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, being, you know, the people in the Old Testament, by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So God revealed himself in different ways as time went on. So he revealed himself to Abraham, right? And he said, okay, I need you to move. The said, okay, I guess I'm going to move, right? And then 20 years later, he's like, uh, good job moving, and you're going to have a son, and then that was kind of all that Abraham got for a long time. And we look back and we're like, oh yeah, he made these promises to Abraham and then he fulfilled them. It was great. And Abraham was like, I had two decades between those two promises with no promise, like nothing, right? But, so we look at Abraham we're like, I, I see the path. I understand where, what was going on, what God was doing there. But Abraham didn't. Right? And so we've got to kind of cut him a little bit of slack. God comes to Moses in the burning bush and says, hey, you're going to lead my people out of Israel or out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And Moses like, like, uh, okay, I guess it's what I'm going to do. God didn't tell him about you know, Mount Sinai or the law or crossing the Red Sea or going into the promised land or 40 years in the desert. God didn't give him all those details. He just said, hey, you're going to get your people out of slavery. He's like, all right, I guess it's what I do. Right? He just had that one step. God revealed himself to Daniel. He, he told Daniel more than he told almost anybody else. Like, Daniel had more of the plan than most of us will ever get in our lifetimes. And still, Daniel's like, I'm not really sure what the next thing is. <laughs> like, he had little bits and pieces. He didn't understand a lot of the things that God gave him. So he talks to these people, or, or he gives them a command, or he, he gives them this revelation, and, you know, they don't understand, they don't get it, because they've only got this one little piece of the path. And so then when we look back on it, we're like, well, there's a bunch of things that God said that don't actually seem to apply to me, so I don't think it's that helpful. Like, I don't want to read the Old Testament because there's all these rules that don't really apply to me. They seem really random. They seem kind of dumb. I'm not going to follow them. Right? So that, that's, that's kind of one of the things that people respond to. But when we look at that objection, like that the Old Testament is just a bunch of rules and they don't really apply to us, that's kind of true, but it still in some ways reveals who God is. Galatians talks about the fact that, um, that the law is a teacher for us, like it's a guide, it's, it's a nursemaid, it's somebody to watch over us until Jesus came. And so there's these rules and God's sort of making points about who he is, about what he expects, and sometimes making those points is more important than the actual rule that was in place. Right? A lot, of, a lot of the Old Testament law, when we read through it, a lot of the rules that they have are there to help us understand that God is holy. And the people that lived at that time were just like, you can't come close to God. He's so holy. He's so perfect. We're afraid of him. And so we look back and we realize that God's holiness is why Jesus had to die. Like the cross makes sense of that, why we can approach Jesus, or why we can approach God. But when we look back, we're just like, that rule seems dumb. But the rule wasn't there for anything other than to teach us, like, who God is, what the character of God is. It's not that we have to follow it, it's just it's there to teach us, to to guide us. God wanted to, one of the things is, God wanted us to understand that the wages of sin is death, right? Like, God wanted us to say, to realize that every time we sin, that causes us to rebel against, like that's rebellion against God and we deserve to die for that. And so we have to deal with that appropriately. And God's saying every single time you sin, that's a problem and it has to be dealt with. Think of God's plan like this. Like when we talk, when we talk about the path, think of it like this. I've got two sons. I've got Luke, I've got Jack, right? Luke is three. He understands very little. I, I'm okay. He's three. He's smart for a three-year-old. Sure, but he's still three, right? Jack is 11. Jack understands quite a bit more right, like eight years of experience on this earth has given him a lot better understanding. The rule for Luke is do not ever cross the street unless someone's holding your hand, right? Don't cross the street, don't step into it, just stand right there, we will come, we will hold your hand, we will lead you across, why? Because I don't want my kid to die in traffic, right? The rule for Jack is look both ways, don't be stupid. like it's a different rule, why? It's the same root, it's the same idea at the heart of it, I don't want my kid to die in traffic. But Jack is smarter, he understands a lot more, he's got more experience, and so he knows, okay, there are times when it's appropriate for me to cross the street by himself. In fact, if you come to the young adult Bible study, Jack goes and gets pie, and he has to cross a major road in order to do that, right? And so it's like, Jack, go get pie, and he knows, okay, I have to cross Clinton River Road he's not going to stand there and wait for somebody to hold his hand. He's going to look both ways. He's going to pay attention. He's going to be smart and he's going to cross safely. He's 11. He can handle it, right? It's a different rule. Why? Because he understands more. He's grown. He's developed. And we think about like school. It's the same thing, right? Like again, Lucas 3, he's learning his ABCs. He's got them down pretty good. He doesn't know what they mean. He just knows that the ABCs is a song that we sing. Like that's where he's at. If he looks at a book, he wants to look at the pictures, and he might ask you, what are these what's this, like the words? But he, he understands that words have meaning, but he doesn't know how or why, right? Like it's just kind of there. Jack's got a whole stack of books on his nightstand that have zero pictures in them. Jack doesn't care about the pictures. He's a reader. He likes to read. He doesn't even think about the alphabet right? Like he's, he's been through that phase. He's learned that. He's grown through that. And so he sees the letters and he's like, we're not going to focus on the letters. We're going to focus on the really cool story that I can read. Like he, he's moved past it. And so when we think about like ourselves in relation to the Old Testament, we have to say, okay, I, I'm more like a 12 year old in the way that I think. I understand what the rules underneath are. I understand what the stories mean. And I can sort of understand what they didn't get, what they hadn't quite graduated to, what hadn't been built on yet for them. So we, we have that advantage where we're further along and we see the path a little bit more clearly. We understand what, what the point was. So my first application question is this. What have you learned as you follow Jesus? And then how does that help you going forward? Because what happens is in our lives, we have the same experience, right? Where we don't understand things, we don't get things, and God reveals them to us, and then we're like, oh, this makes sense. That's why this was a problem, or that's why this was a good thing. Now I understand. We learn things, we grow. And then as we learn those things, hopefully we can apply those lessons moving forward, where because of what God has taught us, because of what God has showed us, we can, we can live in a way that's more honorable to him going forward, So the third concept that can be helpful as we're looking through the Old Testament is that God is creating for himself a people. He's always creating a community of faith. He's always drawing people to himself. The word that we look at and we call church now, like in the New Testament, that word just means the assembling, like people gathering together, getting together. And we recognize that that's people gathering together in order to to glorify God, in order to worship together. But that's, that's all that it is, is it's the gathering of God's people. And so when we look in the Old Testament, like that's the epic plan, right? That God's going to create a people for himself, that he's going to redeem a people for himself and use Jesus to do it. Galatians 3 says this, "'Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you "'do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? "'Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness,' know then that it was those of faith who were the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying so you shall so in you all shall the nation shall all the nations of the earth be blessed wow that was tougher than it should have been so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith so it's saying that God drew Abraham out of his, his land, right? He, he created a people out of him, but to be a child of Abraham doesn't mean that you're just a grandson or a great-grandson or whatever of him. He says, listen, it's about the faith that Abraham had. And if we've got the same faith that Abraham had, then we're a part of the family of, of God. We're a part of the people of Abraham, right? Like that's... That's what it means. It's not about being genealogically con- connected to this guy. It's about having the faith that he had. So we're, we're children of God. We're a part of the people of God, the community of God because of the faith that we have, right? And so we look at Abraham and his people, his children were sort of like the basis for that. Uh, they drew in other people from other parts of the world, but by and large, it was the children of Abraham that were the community of God for a long time. And then when Jesus comes, he's a grand, great, 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 grandson of Abraham, right? Like he descended from that line. And all these people that were around him were the sons of Abraham. They referred to themselves like that. But when Christ died on the cross, he did that and sort of opened it up that anybody can come. And so now it's the people of God is about faith in Jesus rather than about loyalty to the law or to this genealogy. So we've got that relationship together as a people that we were the family of God. And so when we think about that, then some people will say, listen, the Old Testament is all these weird stories and because we're in the New Testament, they don't connect to us anymore. That's, you know, for that time and then this is for a new time and it's different. But the thing is, is all those stories, like I said before, those are a part of of us becoming the people of God and they were laying the foundation for Jesus and they point us forward to Jesus. Let me give you an example. It's not gonna be in this series, so I'm, I'm allowed to steal it, right? Uh, so Jonah, you guys remember Jonah, Jonah, a couple of you, three of you guys, the guy with the big fish, right? Like he got thrown overboard. He got swallowed by the fish. Okay. So Jonah, God comes to him and says, go preach repentance to the evilest city on the planet. The most evil city that exists, go preach repentance to it. And Jonah said, no way they'll kill me. He ran in the opposite direction. He got a ship to go in the opposite direction. And God sent a storm because God didn't want him to go that way. And so the sailors chucked him overboard and God sent a fish and the fish swallows him and brings him back and pukes him up in the sand. And God comes to him again and says, go to the most evil city on the planet and tell them to repent. And so he's like, all right, well, if that's what God's going to do to me, I guess I need to, right? So he goes to Nineveh, this evil, evil city, and he says, God's going to kill you all. That's all he said. And all of a sudden they're like, wait, we don't want God to kill us. What do we have to do? And they all repented. They all changed their evil ways. They all turned to God. Like they changed their lives because he said God was gonna kill them. And so you'd think if you preached for three days and the whole city, the most evil city on the planet came to God, you'd be like, I did pretty good, right? Not Jonah. Jonah gets bent out of shape. Jonah goes up and he goes outside the city and he's like, God, I wish you to kill them." I knew, you were a, I knew you were a loving God. I knew that you'd love them. I knew you'd save them. I wish you'd just kill me instead. Whatever, I don't care anymore. He's all bent out of shape about this. You're like, God just saved this huge city of evil people and you're, you're ticked off about it. And when we read that story, a lot of times the story is God sent this huge fish to swallow this guy and that's the moral. And you're like, so what? Like, what does that mean for us? It doesn't mean anything. We just have this guy that's this prophet and he he runs away from God and then he gets eaten by a fish, but then he's not dead. And we don't know what to do with that. But if we think about the fact that God is creating a people for himself and that God's the hero of this story and that he's trying to draw people to himself, then we look at that and we're like, God loved the most evil city on the planet enough to send one of his people to them. God loved them so much that when that guy ran away, he did a supernatural thing in order to make sure that that guy went and preached the gospel to that city. Like, God loved Nineveh so much that he would send this prophet, this rebellious prophet, and work supernaturally to make sure that they heard about him. Suddenly, that's a pretty cool story, not about some fish, but about God loves people. God loves people that I'm afraid to go to. God loves people that I hate that's who God is. That's how God acts. And and more so, if I'm willing to disobey him, I better look out because he's got a plan. He's moving in a direction. Like if I'm one of the people of God, obedience kind of becomes important because I see what he will do in order to make sure that his plan gets followed, right? Like I don't want to get eaten by a fish. I'm not guaranteed to get puked back up again, right? And then in the middle of all that, there's this little piece where actually it's pointing forward to Jesus. If you go to Matthew 12, it says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of the man be in the earth three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying in the same way that Jonah was considered dead for three days, I'm going to be considered dead for three days. And ultimately, if you reject me, it's going to be way worse for you than if they would have rejected Jonah because Jonah was just a prophet and and Jesus is the son of God. And so Jesus grabs this story that seems kind of obscure and a little bit weird and he pulls it and he's like, this is a part of what God's doing. And this pointed to Jesus in a way that none of us recognized. And so when we read these stories, we have to look and say, okay, how is it a part of God's plan? How, How is it moving forward? But then Also, how is God creating this people for himself? How is God drawing people in? So, that was a ton of information. I'm really sorry about all that. (laughs) Uh, My next application question is this. What have you learned about God from his people? And I say that because I recognize the fact that sometimes we don't learn from just reading scripture, but we look around and we see the people of God around us, and God reveals himself to us through them, through the things that they do, their obedience, their, their loyalty to him, their faithfulness. And we understand more of who God is in the way that he works through the people around him. So as we're reading through the Old Testament, these are the things that we have to look for. We have to first look for God's plan. God's plan is always pointing us to Jesus. So we have to be aware, okay, if if this is a part of God's plan, how does this point us to Jesus? What is God doing here in order to refocus us on that? The second is God's path. God's always revealing more of himself to those people. So what can we learn about what God is revealing to those people in that time that shows us who he is? And then God's people, God's always drawing a people to himself. How do we see God working in hearts and minds and and even in nations in order to pull people to himself to show them his love? How do we see that happening through the Old Testament? 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so Paul's writing here and he's saying, listen, there's this whole history of the Old Testament. All those things are there to help us learn, to help us understand what God is trying to accomplish. So two last questions. Only one is really for application. Um, <laughs> one is, what is confusing about the Old Testament for you? Okay, like if you're actually confused, shoot us an email. You can send that one. You can email me. You can call the office. If you're actually confused about something in the Old Testament, ask. Ask. We've got a whole sermon series. Yeah, it's already planned out, but we're hitting a bunch of the pieces. You might get it answered from the pulpit, and I promise you you'll get it answered at some point, um, even if it's just me calling you back. So if there's something about the Old Testament that frustrates you, that you don't understand, that doesn't make any sense, ask the question. The other thing is, is how do we connect your story of what God is doing? Like God's accomplishing something. He has this plan. He's revealing himself to us. He's creating a people for himself. How do I connect to that? How do I see God revealed? How do I connect to his people? What's my relationship with this big overarching story that God is doing? Uh, Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, the Old Testament that you gave to us to help us understand. We thank you for the fact that you've revealed yourself to the human race over and over and over and over again in these different ways in order to point us to Jesus that we've got these stories that remind us of who you are and your character and your goodness and your love, that we can, we can cling to those things even when it doesn't always make sense, that we can see some of the other people historically that have struggled with the same things that we have and that they ultimately came back to you because they recognized that they were a part of your larger story. I pray that, that as we go through this series over the next few months, that you would help us to recognize how two-thirds of our Bible has a ton of value for us today. Uh, that we would learn from it, that we would understand who you are from the pages of the Old Testament. We pray this in your name. Amen.